listeners, this is Talking Frontiers. I'm your host, Riju Ray, Associate Professor of History at Jindal School of Journalism and Communications. In this podcast, we explore histories, ethnographies, and cultural articulations of spaces understood as frontiers, borderlands, fringes, and margins. In this series of episodes, we will have conversations, exchange ideas and stories by showcasing the rich scholarship and literature on the erstwhile northeastern frontier of British India. Geographically, this frontier included not only the seven states that make up northeast of India today, but also parts of Bangladesh and Myanmar. Welcome to our first episode, Interconnected Histories of Northeast India with Joy Pachuao. In this episode, we highlight the importance of shared histories, interconnections and forgotten pasts of the region that has variously been imagined as borderlands, frontier and very recently the triangle. Welcome, Professor. I'm very excited to be able to talk to you today. Thank you very much for having me here, Professor Ray. Your most recent book, Entangled Lives, Human, Animal, Plant Histories of Eastern Himalayan Triangle, co-authored with William Van Schendel, breaks so many disciplinary barriers. It is a really important book for different sets of readers, those who are being introduced to the region, those who do scholarly work on the region, and finally, those who live in the region. In very accessible language, the book offers a perspective that is both expansive and complex. The book begins with a discussion of geological history, the physical formation of the region, and the first human movements and settlements Um, And then it takes us through time in a non-linear way to explain the belief systems of inhabitants and most importantly, the entanglements of lives of humans, animals and plants. I want to ask you a little bit about the thought process behind writing this book. And can you tell us a little bit about the spatial region that you describe as the triangle? Let me start off by saying, as you asked, uh, the 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 idea behind the book let me address that question first and um uh, professor uh, willem van skendel and i uh, we were as you know we have collaborated before and uh, we wanted to sort of you know bring out uh, a history of the region of of northeast india um but the moment we started of thinking of the history of northeast india um, it's very difficult to kind of have a, a, a view of the region that is sort of encompasses uh, all the communities and all the states. And, and um, you realize also that in terms of time zones, um, they occupy very different sort of time zones. So, for instance, if you talk about uh, a colonial period, you know, the colonial starts... Um, different stages for the region, like, for instance, colonialism barely hit the uh, uh, Ar- Arunachal Pradesh, for instance. And in the case of Mizoram, it would have been from the 1890s. In the case of the Khasis, early 19th century. So so in that sense, it's very difficult to talk of any particular uh, time period or any particular, and because, as you know, the region was not ruled by one particular ruler or dynasty. Uh, so it was very difficult to kind of come up with a base sort of from where we could start. Uh, so that's one thing um, that we found when we wanted to write a history of the region. But we also realized that when we think about the history of the region, you cannot talk about it uh, 
independent of its connections. You know, the boundaries are uh, 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 an independence kind of creation, and you realize that there are lots of uh, interconnections with the neighboring areas. So therefore, uh, uh, the, as the title has it, we call it the Eastern Himalayas, Eastern, no, sorry, the, the Triangle, yes. right? We call it the Triangle because we found that, uh, 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 you know, some ranges of mountains sort of encompass this region. So if you think of it from the Himalayan side, the Eastern Himalayas on the north, on the um, eastern side, you have what is sometimes known as the Indo-Burman Arc or sometimes Arak uh, Arakan uh, Arc. And then on the western side, you have um, uh, the, the, the Chittagong Hill Tracks and other uh, ranges of mountains. So, um, so therefore, uh, when you think of it in terms of the region in, in between these areas, it crosses uh, political boundaries as well. So therefore, uh, the term that we came up with was a tri was the triangle, uh, not very perhaps not a very good name, but that was what we could sort of come up with. So, so the idea was to think about uh, how do we understand the history of this particular region. So, um, as you know, uh, uh, there are very few uh, literary sources for the region. So, so we had all these problems, you know, of trying to identify the region, uh, and we had we realized it had to go beyond political boundaries. And then, uh, in terms of uh, of sources, we also realized that it's very difficult because many of the regions, uh, many many of the, I mean, many groups in the region, many communities in the region, have. Uh, only oral sources. So how do we incorporate these oral sources in the writing of the history of the region? So I think those were some of the things that we uh, had when we tried to think about writing this book. And that's why we came out with this kind of work that encompasses, um, what do you call it, uh, non-humans and you know plants and animals and try to see, because a, a large part of the oral history talks about these things as well, you know. And more than we realize it, we also have to recognize that uh, non-human uh, animals play an important part in the histories of individuals, of, of, of peoples, you know, whether it's in the Northeast or in other areas as well. So those were some, and you know, it's an area that is developing uh, in other parts of the world. So these were the questions and the issues that we had in mind when we were, uh, yeah, thinking about writing this book project. The book demonstrates that the triangle has been part of a sub-Himalayan route of the over eastward overland migrations out of Africa as early as 100,000 years ago. The debates presented in the book about routes of migration of early humans converge on one important historical fact, that although human habitation of the triangle was not a result of a singular wave of migration, nor from a single direction, the region was an important passageway. The research findings demonstrate that from as early as the last ice age, 20,000 years ago, multiple waves of migrants arrived in the region from Southeast Asia and uh, Southern China and integrated with the existing groups. This long historical perspective really challenges um, Eurocentric assumptions of a static and pre-modern tribal identity. 
Can you expand on this and how the book helps us better understand the historical and political category of indigeneity? Yeah, so um, uh, there are lots of, uh, um, you know, points to uh, ponder about. One is, of course, ideas of indigeneity and ideas of, uh, uh, you know, static pre-colonial past and things like that. And, you know, indigeneity um, is... A, is 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 a is a recent uh, i don't know whether we call it recent but in um it's a it's a politically loaded uh, uh term you know and um indig the idea of indigeneity i think is important to the extent that certain groups of people uh, are empowered as a result of uh, the use of the word and also as a result of maybe uh, privileges that they can uh, attain as a result of, of that. But I don't think any group of people can actually claim indigeneity to any particular region if we look at it historically because there have always been movements of people and groups of people. And if you look at, you know, Mizoram uh, case that I know much better, the colonial... Uh, writers were talking about migration that was occurring from the east to the west at the time of the arrival of the British and uh, because they set up boundaries, because they set up uh, territories for certain chiefs, this movement was stopped. You know, otherwise if the British had not come into the region, there would have been much more sort of migration towards, say, Bangladesh or even towards the north, towards Siljar because those were the directions that uh, these migrations were taking. So, so, and I think this is something for all the groups in the Northeast, whether it is the Nagas or, or uh, any other uh, group in the region, there was some kind of, uh, and most of the, so that's where uh, the ideas of mythology and oral stories come into play because uh, people talk about migrations through the, these stories. Um, uh, in the case of Arunachal, some of the tribes there, uh, they claim that they came from the north, from the Himalayas, but others, of course, say that it's more likely they came from the east. But uh, but whatever it is, even in their oral myths, uh, there is a story of a movement of people. Okay, So I think this is something that we need to consider about questions of indigeneity. Now, so therefore, that brings us to the question of whether... Uh, societies were static in the pre-colonial period. We recognize, therefore, that because of these movements that it was not static. And any kind of movement into a new area brings up new sort of social construction. So in terms of movement of people, definitely uh, there was, um, uh, there was, it wasn't, it wasn't static. And then uh, in other articles that I've written elsewhere, I've also spoken about movement of commodities. Like, for instance, I think cowrie, you know, mm. uh, has moved from uh, the Maldives into Bengal and into the rest of the region. And and in the uh, in many parts, of course, it is not um, equally prevalent. Cowrie is not equally prevalent throughout the Northeast. There are certain cultures that have adopted it and used it wholesale, like, for instance, the Nagas. Some tribes of the Nagas, you, uh, Naga tribes use it as status symbols. 
it was used as form of barter but see the mizos don't use cowrie at all in there so it missed some so i you know it, it's very interesting the root of these cowrie shells and things like that how 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 they move from place to place so so and and so so uh if if they move it means that there were traders there were people who moved and you know things like that so um so therefore um and also you realize um uh especially uh say uh, in the case of uh, some of the tribes in in the chin hills you know um there was an expansion that was taking place and uh, you know attempts at state formation you know uh, is seen because uh, certain chieftain clans develop um and um and uh, and uh, they incorporate other areas and you know uh, attempts at collection of uh, of taxes and things like that wherein you know the the formation of a state you early formation of a state is visible so one thing that i found so exciting when i was reading the book was the discussion on food in the triangle mm-hmm. fermentation particularly and you know the the mm-hmm. role that organisms uh, play mm-hmm. and i i mean this is something that i i didn't think about food in that sense because my ancestors are from silhet and we eat a lot of dried fish which is also fermented fish mm-hmm. and then there's uh, tungrumbai in in uh, meghalaya where i grew up but to think about it in terms of a relationship between uh, humans and you know these these microorganisms is something that was really really yeah. fascinating yeah so um, so yeah one of the chapters in the book talks about cultural geographies and uh, so in that culture in the in the book uh, in the section on cultural geographies we look about uh, we talk about how certain um spatial categories are created and these spatial categories emerge uh, have i mean in our understanding uh, emerge out of particular kinds of associations that we have with with animals with plants with microorganisms so that's the way we sort of and so the idea of fermentation and so that creates a particular space and this region shares that with a lot large part of southeast asia as well and then the other thing that we talk about in terms of um, um the cultural geography that we talk about is uh, what others have called mithun country because you know the mithun is specific to this particular region it they occupy and the mithun occupies most of the hill areas of of this particular region and the kind of a symbolic value it has for the people of the region which is not shared by people from any other uh, regions you know so the mithun as we said was something whose was not uh, sort of uh, reared or or prized for its meat value but more because of the kind of ritual symbolic value it has so uh, and that sort of creates a specific kind of spatial cultural uh, geography as well so i think uh, the book kind of explores the 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 distinctiveness uh, of the region and ter- and the space that it occupies so we're trying to kind of crystallize the idea of the region and what gives it specificities through this interaction with various kinds of non-human what we call non-human beings or non-human animals and things like that yeah 
Yeah, and, and I think the, the presence of uh, non-human animals and different uh, beings, uh, you know, some, some that are n sort of imagined beings, like the tiger men, for example, mm -hmm. and others uh, reflect um, uh, a deep-rooted uh, sort of temporality or time when it comes to thinking about the self and identity. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about these you know, pre-colonial ceremonies that are now being integrated as part of modern life in um, Mizoram, which is, uh, you know, uh, Christian, uh, uh, where people practice Christianity, but have uh, incorporated certain elements of pre-colonial ceremonies. Um, yeah, so um, as we all know, I mean, a large part of the festivities that ha occurred during uh, the pre-colonial uh, period were part of agricultural cycles. Uh, recently in Mizoram, uh, the Chaptar Kut was celebrated, and basically it is, uh, um, I mean, it's called a spring festival now in, uh, you know, in Kulu, I mean, the English translation, but it is not how we would understand a spring festival. It is actually to do with an agricultural cycle wherein, in, you know, in, in, in June cultivation, for instance, what's it called you it's slash and burn right so mm -hmm. you slash away all the the jungle and then you burn the, uh, and then you leave it to dry and then you burn it so the tsaptarkut actually is a celebration of the end of that particular uh, cycle so festivals in the past had to do with intrinsic i mean had to do with uh, lifestyles of people but in contemporary times, what is happening, therefore, is that uh, especially when it's celebrated in 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 Aizol, for instance, our our agriculturalists now. So it's not to celebrate an agricultural cycle, but it is incorporated as a celebration of one's identity, one's past. So I think that's the way. I think everywhere that is what is happening to a certain extent <clears throat> when we think of all these. Um, festivals that we have in the rest of the country as well, uh, wherein it is a celebration, it is a, it becomes a marker of identity, it becomes a marker of who uh, you were. There's a lot of pre-Christian, uh, pre-colonial um, sort of festivals that are incorporated or ways of being that are incorporated into uh, Mizo uh, existence. Like for instance, even in the church, um, um, the kind of singing that takes place you know, in church is not necessarily, um, you know, what may be called um, uh, uh, Western styles of uh, singing, but especially in the Mizo church, traditional tunes are incorporated. I mean, local composers have, have and, and traditional tunes are incorporated into the singing, and traditional, uh, you know, drums are incorporated into church singing, and traditional sort of uh, dances, dances that were associated with pagan or pre-Christian beliefs and things are incorporated within uh, church worship. So uh, I, I, I don't necessarily think of Christianity as um, a break uh, in from pre-existing ways of being. It's, it's just a different frame of reference and the cultural tools for its practice is from within the society of within the cultural practices of that particular uh, society. So that's the way I tend to see 
the 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 sort of continuities within uh, within uh, say Mizo society, and I think it is the same f- for for most of the region, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. If we if we think through. Uh, you know, this perspective that you've offered us, uh, the notion of indigeneity is very, very historically complex. Um, And, you know, it's uh, evidenced by the study in this book. It is um, uh, evidenced by how you just explained to us about, uh, you know, even the, the incorporation rather than thinking about you know the incorporation of pre-colonial traditions into Christianity it's Christianity that is incorporated into the lives of people yeah. and uh, b- but often we've seen uh, the the idea of indigeneity being deployed uh, in flawed ways when studying the region um, whether it or in even in political rhetoric uh, in uh, terms of you know, uh, further ma- marginalization sometimes of tribal and non-tribal commu- uh, migrant communities, um, sometimes in um, sort of in this rise of uh, conservative right-wing um, ideas of of uh, pure mm. identity, um, and uh, so while we we can think about uh, th- uh, these very flawed ways of expressing self and identity um, and the book provides a corrective for that but how do we reconcile these structural hierarchies that are in place um, that have been introduced in the more recent past perhaps through colonialism and capitalism with this idea of you know uh, indigeneity as a very complex sort of issue like at the what you had mentioned a while ago about it being an empowering sort of idea or a, or a, or a expression yeah. but uh, yeah it's a that's a very difficult question you know because uh, as historians we we talk about uh, uh, and we try to think about the past correctly uh, as much as is possible, but at the same time, uh, there is politics. So, <laughs> you know, it's very difficult to understand because I think this is not just uh, a problem of the Northeast per se. It's uh, it's a problem of the whole world. I mean, you 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 hear a you hear a Rishi Sunak in the in the UK who is a migrant who is talking about you know, uh, not allowing, not granting asylum to, you know, people who haven't got, who haven't come in, in through the correct means and things like that. So I think this is a problem that is uh, that is uh, prevalent worldwide and uh, structures need to be in place, which definitely at one level uh, protects the rights of people who claim to be indigenous. Uh, but at the same time, I think uh, yeah, structures need to be in place also for those who are seen as as having recently sort of migrated into the region. I suppose you know, and I think uh, at one level, uh, I mean, I don't think people forget uh, the uh, you know the fact that, or people don't know rather. I mean, I don't think people don't know that. Um, how should I put it? Uh, that uh, 
uh, all identities are a result of uh, great intermixing. I don't think people uh, forget that, but I think, um, um, you know, when politics comes into the fray and, you know, there is a desire to sort of crystallize identities. Like, I mean, in my other book, Being Mizo, that's what I also uh, mentioned, wherein even in Mizo society, there are many people of, uh, of mixed heritage, you know, and people recognize that uh, and, you know, and and they're accepted into Mizo society at one level. But then there are certain groups at certain points of time who will say that they are not Mizo and things like that. And that is basically uh, uh, politics that comes into uh, into play at mm. at different points in time, you know. So, yeah, it's very difficult to know what needs to be done about it. But I guess, uh, um, I mean, what can I say except to say that there has to be a greater awareness of of um, the 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 problem of indigeneity mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. of the issues of indigeneity and things like that you know mm -hmm. without i guess uh, doing away with the rights of 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 the indigenous so to say i mean without doing away with the category um, so I have a final question for you, which is about sources. And, um, you know, the book mentions that the most relevant historical narratives emerge from a collaboration between historians and local uh, storytellers. Um, can you tell us why, uh, you know, why a large array of historical sources that include non-written documentary sources uh, are so crucial? And um, here I'm also thinking about your previously published books like Camera as Witness and Being Mizo and your the sources you use uh you know oral um yeah. histories and so on so um let me start off with uh, the book the camera as uh, uh as uh, you know the camera is witness for instance wherein um we of course collected uh, photographs from um, from various libraries and archives in the UK, but also went to, you know, through the length and breadth of Mizoram and, Mani and, and some parts of Manipur and Tripura. Uh, and we would just go to a village uh, uh, and randomly ask people, do you have family albums that you can share with us? And, um, and so what I found uh, while doing that was that you know, um, local histories come into play, local uh, ideas of what is commemorable come into play, um, local uh, manifestations of certain trends, for instance, come into play. So, um, so uh, I think the, you know, so the photographs actually are a, a good way of understanding uh, how people understood themselves, you know, and locally, and also in a way how global ideas uh, get manifested locally. And one of the ways in photographs was was clearly through, you know, fashion, for instance, in remote areas in the 70s. Photographs from the 70s will have men and women in bell bottoms and platform shoes, and or, you know, uh, you know how. Uh, for instance, the guitar makes its way into most rural areas, and I mean, even um, uh, I mean, there 
some of these guitars would be, you know, manufactured in the village, not brought from anywhere else, but they're trying to make their own versions of guitars. So you just realize that, you know, uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, and even where, while these areas may be considered as remote, back of the beyond, you know, they are still in tune with what is happening at the, lo at the, at the, at the global stage, you know. So you can see that, you know, um, you know I mean, so I think uh, that those kinds of sources are very important in trying to tell uh, uh, our stories, you know. So that's one way um, I would, uh, you know, I would respond to your question. But then, of course, things like myths, you know, some, I mean, historians have not really taken them seriously, but... There are things that they talk about which make you ponder about how people thought about themselves and their past, you know. So, so for instance, uh, in being Mizu, I, I, I stressed upon this about how this idea of Qinlung in the Mizu case, which is an origin story about how um, there's a big, uh, uh, you know, a rock or a cave from which people were seen to have might come out, you know, humanity, humanity started from there. And you realize that all those who claim this Qinlung story, it, you know, it's not just for Mizo speakers, but it, it's similar to, you know, Mar speakers or Paite speakers in Opoi and Mara uh, speakers uh, in neighboring states and in, even in Myanmar. And people tend to see themselves as similar. So, you know, it's a myth that is being used to kind of uh, broaden this ethnic identity. Some call it, I mean, the broader Mizo identity, or, you know. So, so myths are instrumental in that sense as well, you know, tr in trying to understand these. And then, of course, um, uh, through myths, you also get, you know, social hierarchies and social structures and, um, so, uh, so uh, these stories are often very important in the way uh, social classification takes place as well, you know. So I think that's, um, I mean, yeah, so that's the way we sort of take local, his local stories seriously and try to incorporate that in our work. Thank you so much, Professor. It was so lovely chatting with you, and I'm excited to talk to you more about your work outside of the studio and continue our continuing our conversation. Um, thank you for coming uh, to GSJC uh, Studio and being our one of our first guests here. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. This podcast series is produced by Siddharth Pillai and Tushar Singh, students of the Jindal School of Journalism and Technology.